Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Or welcome back, if you're a returning listener. Episode 4, Adventus Saxonum. I want to start with a brief note on terminology. I call the migrants to 6th century Britain Saxons, collectively. They didn't all come from Saxony. Instead, the evidence indicates that they came from a wide variety of regions in northern Germany and southern Scandinavia. I intend to use Anglo-Saxon to refer collectively to the peoples and cultures that emerge at the end of the 6th century, when they'd begun to diverge from the continental peoples from whom they were descended. The term used by historians is insular, coming from the Latin for of an island, and it denotes specifically those people of Britain and Ireland who were related to groups on the continent, but who developed independently due to their separation from them. The Britons and the Irish, as a result, were insular Celts. In my usage, Anglo-Saxon refers collectively to the insular Germans, if you will. When talking about things like dialect or art styles, I'll refer to Angles, Saxons, Jutes, etc. But collectively, I will refer to them as Anglo-Saxons. At this stage of migration and early state formation, I will favour the ethnic terms, where necessary, or just use Saxon as a collective noun to indicate that at this time, we can't assume that they had diverged significantly from their continental counterparts. Okay, with that note on terminology out of the way, let's get going. So, four episodes in, and we are finally coming to the beginning of Anglo-Saxon history itself, with the Saxon migration, or to use its Latin name, Adventus Saxonum, which means something along the lines of arrival of the Saxons. The term is slightly misleading, since it implies a single homogenous group, when in fact it appears that the migrants came from various parts of southern Scandinavia and northern Germany, such as Saxony, Anglia, Jutland and Frisia. The material culture that they left in their cemeteries and settlements in eastern England attests to their ties to these regions. The hilts and pommels of swords, the style of clothing and jewellery, the decoration of pottery and even the construction of the buildings themselves, all mirror styles found across the North Atlantic in the mid-5th century. At this time, the related but nevertheless distinct cultures of Northern Europe were being transplanted to Eastern and Southern Britain. To take one example, we can tell from the sword pommels, that is, the caps put on the end of a sword's hilt, that the migrants in England maintained contact of some kind with the peoples of their ancestral homelands. In the Staffordshire Horde, one of the largest finds of Anglo-Saxon sword pommels ever, several of the pommels feature abstract and zoomorphic designs that bear extremely close resemblance to pommels found in 6th and 7th century Sweden, which seems to indicate continued cultural exchange across the North Sea. Similarly, 
the means of building construction used in the east of Britain in this period, begins to show the rise of building methods used in the ancestral homelands across the North Sea, in particular the sunken building type and the small bioless hall. It's extremely difficult to give a date to the Saxon migrations. Gildas doesn't offer any dates. Bede gives us several dates, none of which seem very reliable. The Gallic Chronicle of 452, last encountered in episode 1, says that in 441 to 442 Britain was subjugated by the Saxons, but it gives no further information as to exactly what this means. All later sources, such as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, relied on Bede for their narrative, so their dates are no more reliable than his. For what it's worth, the written evidence seems to lean towards some point in the mid-5th century for the Saxon migrations, but the archaeology of some sites seems to suggest that migration began quite early in the 5th century, or possibly even in the late 4th century. How can we judge this? Well, it's admittedly an imprecise science, since coins and such aren't part of this early evidence, we don't really have any solid dates to go on. Instead, dating this material usually depends on comparing artistic styles to build a typology of how designs changed over time. The results can be compelling, but they are also vulnerable to being totally upended by some metal detectorist in a muddy field somewhere who happens to hit it big. With this caveat in mind, the evidence of early Saxon objects, particularly ceramics and jewellery such as brooches, suggests that migrants from northern Germany began arriving in the early 5th century, possibly sometime around 420. As stated previously, the migrants didn't come from a culturally homogenous region. Consequently, the communities that took root in Britain were not culturally homogenous either. The evidence of art styles on brooches and bracteates, thin gold discs worn for decoration, indicates that distinctive styles tended to cluster in what are now often interpreted as tribal groups. These often didn't correspond to the boundaries of later kingdoms. In Kent, for example, we find a clear east-west divide with objects of Western Kent being similar to those of migrants from Saxony, while those of Eastern Kent tend to show Frankish influence. Tribal groups must have included men and women, but did whole groups migrate, or did new groups emerge in Britain? Gildas's account of the migration seems to suggest a primarily military, and thus presumably masculine, migration. Quote, then all the councillors, together with that proud tyrant Watergun, the British king, were so blinded that, as a protection to their country, they sealed its doom by inviting in among them like wolves into the sheepfold the fierce and impious Saxons, a race hateful both to God and men, to repel the invasions of the northern nations. Nothing was ever so pernicious to our country, nothing was ever so unlucky. What palpable darkness must have enveloped their minds, darkness desperate and cruel. Those very people whom, when absent, they dreaded more than death itself, were invited to reside, as one may say, under the same roof. A multitude of whelps came forth from the lair of this barbaric lioness, in three cules, as they call them, that is, in their ships of war, with their sails wafted by the wind, and with omens and prophecies favourable, for it was foretold by a certain soothsayer among them, that they should occupy the country to which they were sailing for three hundred years, and half of that time, a hundred and fifty years, should plunder and despoil the same. They first landed on the eastern side of the island, by the invitation of the unlucky king, and there fixed their sharp talons, apparently to fight in favour of the island, but alas more truly against it. Their motherland, finding her first brood thus successful, sends forth a larger company of her wolfish offspring, which sailing over joins themselves to their bastard-born comrades. The barbarians being thus introduced as soldiers into the island, to encounter, as they falsely said, any dangers in defence of their hospitable entertainers, 
obtain an allowance of provisions which for some time being plentifully bestowed stopped their doggish mouths yet they complain that their monthly supplies are not furnished in sufficient abundance and they industriously aggravate each quarrel saying that unless more liberality is shown them then they will break the treaty and plunder the whole island in a short time they followed up their threats with deeds for all his rhetoric it seems that gildas didn't know much about the saxons themselves but his main contention is that the initial migration came about when the Saxons, who previously menaced the Britons, were enlisted as mercenaries meant to defend the Britons from the Irish and Picts. After this, he suggests that more migrants came once this first group was established. As discussed in the last episode, Gildas's work is heavily rhetorical and lacks much of the detail that would set it apart as history. For example, if we wanted to know when the migration occurred and from where the migrants came, we couldn't gather that from Gildas's account. We can possibly find more of this kind of information if we look to a later writer who drew heavily on Gildas but expanded his account with information gleaned from the English themselves. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bede, writing in the early 8th century, offers in Book 1, Chapter 15 of his Ecclesiastical History of the English People what has become the definitive version of the migration story. Quote, in the year of our Lord 449, the race of Angles or Saxons, invited by Watergurn, came to Britain in three warships, and by his command were granted a place of settlement in the eastern part of the island, ostensibly to fight on behalf of the country, but their real intention was to conquer it. First, they fought against the enemy that attacked from the north, and the Saxons won victory. A report of this, as well as the fertility of the island and the slackness of the Britons, reached their homelands, and at once a much larger fleet was sent over with a stronger band of warriors. This added to the contingent already there, and made an invincible army. They came from three very powerful Germanic peoples, the Saxons, Angles, and Jutes. The people of Kent and the inhabitants of the Isle of Wight are of Jutish origin, and also those opposite the Isle of Wight in that part of the Kingdom of Wessex, which is today still called the Nation of the Jutes. From the Saxon country, that is the district now known as Old Saxony, came the East Saxons, the South Saxons and the West Saxons. Besides this, from the country of the Angles, that is the land between the kingdoms of the Jutes and the Saxons, which is called Anglus, came the East Angles, the Middle Angles, the Mercians, and all the Northumbrian race, that is, those people who dwell north of the river Humber, as well as the other Anglian tribes. Anglus is said to have remained deserted from that day to this. Their first leaders are said to have been two brothers, Hengist and Horsa. Horsa was afterwards killed in battle by the Britons, and in the eastern part of Kent there is still a monument bearing his name. They were the sons of Wichtgissel, son of Witta, son of Wecta, son of Woden, from whom stock the royal family of many kingdoms claimed their descent. End quote. Unlike Gildas, Bede gives us a date and detailed information about the migrants themselves. However, despite this, his narrative is only slightly more useful. The date 449 is only one of several dates offered by Bede for the migration, indicating that he was not certain of it himself. Also, 
while he acknowledges more cultural diversity among the migrants than does Gildas. The archaeology suggests that even this division of the migrants into Angles, Saxons and Jutes is reductive. As noted, Kent offers evidence for at least one other group, the Franks, and the archaeology of Eastern England suggests many small tribal groups. Bede's image of a twofold migration is lifted directly from Gildas, so it is still uncertain whether this is a reliable image of the migrations and their makeup. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. The image derived from the written account is one of a conquest by a small, elite warrior group. Certainly warriors were among the migrants. The discovery of sword pommels and hilts of southern Scandinavian design make it clear that some quite wealthy warriors migrated. Remember that due to the amount of metal and skill required to make a sword, they were extremely expensive meaning that only the powerful or those in service of the powerful could afford them. It's not clear though whether this is evidence for a warrior elite takeover. There is also plenty of evidence for the establishment of farming communities, where people lived in houses built in imported styles. This has led some scholars to reject the idea of settlement only by warriors in favour of settlement also by farmers. It's also clear from the burial evidence that the king group, and not the warrior band, was the primary social unit of the earliest Saxon communities. We can suggest this based on the layout of early Saxon cemeteries, like those found at West Hesleton, Finglesham and Morningthorpe. Here the graves are laid out relative to particularly wealthy burials that were made visible focal points by either being covered with small grave mounds, or by being located at the centre of the graveyard. Examination of the bodies and the surrounding graves suggests that in many cases, one's proximity to the central grave was dictated by social rank and lifestyle. All the burials with grave goods indicate by the goods style that these cemeteries were used by people who belonged to a common tribal identity. The number of bodies and the dates of death indicate that many of these sites served fairly small communities for several generations. It has been suggested that in these cemeteries we see the importance of kinship and rank within a household, or a collection of households. Of course, this leaves open the question of ethnicity. Modern historians, using post-structuralist methods, emphasise the degree to which identity is chosen by an individual or by their community. So the argument runs, a Briton could adopt Saxon material culture and look in the archaeological record like a Saxon, despite their being actually a Briton or a British person's community could bury them in a Saxon way to assert their changing communal identity, regardless of the individual's preference in life. This argument is compelling and can't really be easily refuted. It has been used as a way to suggest that the number of migrants was small, but that by attaining positions of power, they were able to anglicise large swathes of the population. In some regions, something like this apparently did happen. In the two kingdoms that made up Northumbria, Bernicia and Dera, it seems that Anglian migrants did indeed take control of the centres of political power of Bamborough, Yevering and York, and that the resulting Anglian kingdoms were still British enough to keep their Britonic names just in anglicised form. But it's much harder to find evidence for this elsewhere, since most other Saxon kingdoms did not adopt Britonic names. Instead, their names were descriptive of the people who lived there, Wessex for the West Saxons, East Anglia for the Eastern Angles, and Mercia for the people of the border, in Old English, Merch. 
In these other kingdoms too, most place names were Old English coinages rather than anglicised Britonic names such as Yevering. In these other places, it seems more likely that migrants were more than just a warrior elite. They totally displaced British culture and renamed the land in their own tongue, which of course suggests that they lived in close proximity to it, in a manner more akin to farmers than to elites. But while migration probably looked very different in different parts of the country, its cumulative effect was the same. Everywhere the Saxons settled, British language and identity was almost entirely wiped out. We can see how complete this was in the almost total lack of Britonic influence on Old English. If we look at an event that was certainly an elite takeover, the Norman Conquest, then we see that English, Welsh and Irish linguistic and cultural identity survived. Not without some change, but they ultimately survived, while Anglo-Norman identity eventually died out. Something similar happened elsewhere in the Western Empire, in Spain, France and Italy. The incoming barbarians were eventually subsumed into the vulgar Roman culture of the ordinary people. But in Britain the opposite happened, and if it was just an elite takeover, it's difficult to see how the end of British culture could be so complete in regions settled by the Saxons. While in the past some scholars have used this to argue for a genocide, there is actually no evidence to support that reading. For example, we would expect to find mass graves or battle sites between the Britons and Saxons. There are no mass graves, and most of the battles that we are told about by writers such as Gildas have not been located. For example, we don't know where Baden Hill is. Just because we haven't found them doesn't mean they didn't happen, but the lack of evidence does have to be acknowledged. The mystery of the Britons' fate must remain just that, and whatever the migration looked like, be it an elite takeover or the settlement of tribal and kin groups, the result is the same. The migrants began to establish their own kingdoms and identities. Much later sources, such as Bede and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, present stories of legendary figures who established the kingdoms that would dominate Anglo-Saxon history from the mid-6th century on. Wuffa of East Anglia, Serditch of Wessex, Ichel of Mercia, in most cases, it's impossible to tell if these men actually existed, and the stories reek of later teleological myth-making. Teleology means explaining something based on its final outcome, so the legendary kings of the 6th century were meant to explain the future identities of the kingdoms that existed in the 8th and 9th centuries. Thus, they have little to do with the actual history of the early Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. The most probable explanation is that the early kingdoms developed out of various tribal groups that settled in Britain. The intermixing of regional styles found in brooches and bracteates indicates the intermixing of tribes, be it by conquest or mutually beneficial cooperation. As seen in Kent, the mixing of cultures could lead to political unification. Another piece of evidence that may indicate the unification of tribes under powerful overlords is a later document called the Tribal Hydage. This is a document that lists 35 tribes and the number of hides owned by each of them. A hide was the basic unit of land measurement used by the Anglo-Saxons and referred to the smallest possible amount of land capable of supporting a single household. The text is thought to have been written between the 7th and the 9th centuries during the period of the Mercian supremacy since Mercia sits at the top of the list with the highest number of hides, 30,000 to be exact. The most common interpretation of the hidage is that it was some kind of tribute list, meant to help calculate the payments due from each group listed to be sent to the Mercian overlord at Tamworth. While not all of the tribes can be located on a map, many can, and doing so creates a sense that Anglo-Saxon England during the Mercian supremacy consisted of several large kingdoms and many much smaller groups that had retained some sense of distinctiveness, even if they were no longer actually independent. For the question of the earliest state formation, 
The tribal hideage suggests how it may have occurred with powerful groups achieving dominance over weaker ones. The process took time, but all of the major Anglo-Saxon kingdoms seem to have taken early form by the end of the 6th century. The last to emerge out of the shadow of myth is Mercia itself, with its first certainly historical king being Penda, who reigned between 626 and 655. So if the migration began in earnest in the early 5th century, the period of settlement and state formation took almost 200 years. The written sources present the intervening time as one of war and disruption, and certainly the fluctuating power of different groups must have made it a time ripe for conflict. We lack a detailed knowledge of the period though, since no written source survives from the Britons other than Gildas, and the Saxons at this time were a pre-literate culture. This would change, however, when in 597, an Italian monk named Augustine landed on the Isle of Thanet, with a mission from Pope Gregory to convert the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. Thank you for listening. I have some exciting news. This podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts. I'm working on getting it accepted onto other podcasting platforms too, and will keep you posted on any developments. In the meantime, I'd like to ask that if you've listened to this show and enjoyed it, that you leave a rating wherever you found it, since that really helps it to get exposure. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you who listens, and I hope that you'll continue to stick with me as we continue on this journey together. But that's all for now. So, once again, I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England Podcast. History is the greatest adventure story, but does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.